Joe Biden is proposing that a commission be formed to investigate where all the traffic's at. In a speech made to a family photo on the mantelpiece, until Biden realized the camera was actually behind him, the former vice president and sentient creature said, quote, we need to find out where all the cars are. One minute I'm looking out the window and there's traffic everywhere. The next it's like everyone just decided to stay at home. Is this some sort of conspiracy or has Donald Trump stolen all the cars? Darned if I know, but come on, man, we've got to find out, unquote. When informed that people were staying indoors because of a dangerous pandemic, Biden responded, quote, oh, yeah, I seem to remember hearing something about that. Well, that's no good either. Maybe we should look into that, too, unquote. Mrs. Biden then stepped up to her husband and murmured, come away now, Joe, and led him back to his bedroom so he could continue his speech there. Nancy Pelosi is also demanding investigations into why the Trump administration invited people to come to Chinatown after the pandemic was well underway and why they tried to push meaningless expenditures and regulations into a pandemic relief bill, holding up emergency funds in order to support a socialist agenda. When told that was actually not the Trump administration, but she herself who had done those things, Pelosi remarked, quote, oh, well, then let's investigate something else, unquote. Congressman Adam Schiff wants investigations as well. Schiff says he has seen absolute proof that something very bad has happened and it's Trump's fault. And he's going to show everybody that proof in a very short time. But right now, it's a secret. Meanwhile, on Brian Stelter's reliable sources, commentator Napoleon Bonaparte called for an investigation into why his troops had fallen back from Moscow just as victory was within their grasp. Other panelists were either nodding in agreement we're just reacting to the meds. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. So according to the administration, their models show we're now heading into the peak of the pandemic when we can expect the numbers of sick and dead to rise quickly and be thoroughly dispiriting. If this turns out to be true, one of the other things we can expect is the tone of our national discourse to deteriorate from the merely idiotic to the utterly hysterical. There'll be angry outbursts from people who used to be calm. Voices will rise, accusations will fly, bizarrely elaborate name-calling will overwhelm social media, and in general, the biggest fools will sound the most certain about the things they know least. Hard as it is to believe, the news media will get even worse, touting any detail guaranteed to spread fear and questioning administration policies from a platform of pure, unself-aware, anti-Trump and anti-Republican hostility mixed with an almost stunning ignorance of mathematics and what does and does not constitute science and expertise, which is not to mention all the lemming-like socialism we can look forward to. Just as a suggestion for my friends, you might want to limit your intake of information to venues you trust. Don't click on every story that entices you to play to your sentiments and don't get addicted to expressing outrage, which doesn't accomplish anything and will blow back on you by magnifying your own emotions at a time when you need to keep calm, both for your own sake and for the sake of those around you. People are going to act badly. Look for the many, many people who will act well. Be like them. You'll be glad later. 
And let's hope the president and his men and women act well, too, because this is also the time for planning the course into the future. This is when we need to start studying and talking about how to get everyone back to work. It has to happen. It has to be thought about. It can't be done recklessly. It requires expertise in the same way the medical aspects require expertise. As the numbers get bad, the voices that say silly and hysterical things about unlimited lockdowns have to be ignored in the same way that people who denounce the medical experts have to be ignored. About a minute before I came on the air, uh, President Trump officially nominated Brian Miller to serve as the, the Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery, a new position with the Treasury Department with oversight powers into the government's coronavirus response. Miller currently serves as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Associate Counsel in the Office of White House Counsel. That is excellent news. That's exactly what Trump should be doing. I was worried because he was talking about that before. And when the press came down on him, as they will about this as well, he backed off a little. But this is good because this is a dual disaster. It has a health component and an economic component. Both of them have to be dealt with. When Trump said we can't let the cure be worse than the problem, he was 100% right, no matter what the press says to him. Everyone has made mistakes. It's impossible to imagine a situation like this where that would not be true. It's impossible to imagine a situation like this where every single person will not have made mistakes and gotten things wrong. But this now is the moment of decision. This is what we'll judge our leaders on, how they steer us through the heart of the whirlwind into the calmer waters beyond. And it's how we'll judge ourselves as well. This is when you show your children who you are, when you show your spouse and your family who you are, when you show yourself who you are. It's not that we have nothing to fear. Hope is a choice you make. Courage is a choice you make. We need to follow the leaders who hope and plan and have the courage to begin to rebuild. And I'll show you why that's so difficult to do. But first, let's talk about ebb sleep. I know people are having a hard time sleeping. They're telling me about it. I don't sleep that much, but I have tried ebb. And I, you know, I got to tell you, I do not like sleeping pills. I don't like pills in general. I very rarely take anything unless my doctor browbeats me into it because he says it's for my, I, it'll keep me alive 10, 20 minutes longer. But I really take very, very little. But, and sleeping pills especially bother me because I think you have to then take something to wake you up. Ebb sleep is a non-medical way to get yourself to sleep. It is a wearable solution that fits over the forehead and gently cools the forehead to reduce racing thoughts, allow people, allowing people who suffer from sleeplessness to drift more comfortably into sleep. The mind's normal way of dealing with stress and challenges is to be on guard or more vigilant. I'm sure that's happening to a lot of you now, but brain imaging studies followed by 3,800 nights of clinical studies by renowned sleep researchers revealed a revolutionary new way to sleep. Actually, four out of five users report getting to sleep faster with ebb. I tried it. It does, you know, like I said, I never sleep, so I don't know, but it does give you a sense of distance and a sense of calm. Ebb Sleep understands the uncertainty you may be experiencing at this time and wants to help. You can save $25 off your order by using promo code CLAVEN to save and continue to try ebb risk-free for 60 nights to confirm it's the solution you've been looking for at tryab.com slash Claven. Let us help you get the sleep you need and remove the risk from your purchase. That's tryebb.com slash Claven, tryab.com slash Claven, and use promo code Claven to save. Order today with everything going on. Get the sleep you need and deserve so you don't have to lie awake thinking, how do you spell Claven? If you hear that, you'll know that you've been up too long. Uh, you know, just before we get into more of the news, uh, the Queen of England gave a speech yesterday. Uh, let's hear just a little bit of that. Together we are tackling this disease. And I want to reassure you that if we remain united and resolute, then we will overcome it. 
I hope in the years to come, everyone will be able to take pride in how they responded to this challenge. And those who come after us will say the Britons of this generation were as strong as any, that the attributes of self-discipline, of quiet, good-humoured resolve, and of fellow feeling still characterise this country. The pride in who we are is not a part of our past. It defines our present and our future. The moments when the United Kingdom has come together to applaud its care and essential workers will be remembered as an expression of our national spirit. You know, I, I lived in London when Princess Di died and there was this outpouring of like over emotion. And I call it over emotion because, you know, celebrities die. It was a tragic thing, but she was obviously a very disturbed person. It was not, uh, you know, it was not un, a kind of unex, it was unexpected, but it was not um, a terrible personal tragedy. It was very unlike the English and it was following the therapeutic model of expressing your feelings. The therapeutic model is there as a healing technique. It's not a way of life. It's in times like this that call for stoicism. And we don't hear anything about stoicism anymore. Our press operates against it. And that's what I want to take a look at. Why the press is waging a war on hope, why it wages a war on courage. And that is what we will examine. Uh, You know, just there was an exchange over the weekend that really, really got to me. You know, things are moving up, but the number, you know, the numbers are still small, but they're moving up, uh, you know, very quickly. And now this was the first time that I think 100,000 new cases in the world appeared uh, in a single day. Uh, the numbers in America, I believe, have gone over 10,000 dead. Uh, and, you know, that's obviously each one of those is a tragedy. Each one of those is somebody's terrible, terrible loss. But still, you know, in a flu season, you get um, you get a lot more than that. You get up to 60,000. And on Sunday night, a model from the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, at the University of Washington dropped its estimated death projection for the first wave of the pandemic to 81,766 deaths, down from 93,531. That's a difference of almost 12,000 fewer deaths, marking a 14% decrease. And as I keep explaining, this is new information coming in. These models are just guesses. They are just guesses. The reason, you know, I I wrote a column about this. I just got a letter from a physicist saying what a good column it was. It's a column for the Daily Wire just saying that these are just guesses. And some people were, uh, you know, kind of sneering at me because computer models, for instance, will predict an eclipse. Those are repeating regular events. Numbers can do that. But this is a non-repeating irregular event. And all they can do is guess. And so they're pouring in information in every day. The as the future becomes the present, the model predicting the future looks more like the present because they keep changing it. And ultimately, and when they get to the end and they have the final outcome, the computer model will reflect that final outcome. And so help me, every single one of them will say, see, we got it right. We, you know, because they keep eventually they're predicting 10 minutes from now. They're predicting yesterday, basically. And so, you know, these these numbers are we have to remember. We have to remember these numbers are unreliable. And I'll tell you why in a second. First, here's the Surgeon General talking about the fact that we are now facing the, the heart of the crisis. We're now going into the whirlwind. 
Well, it's tragically fitting that we're talking at the beginning of Holy Week because this is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives, quite frankly. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country. And I want America to understand that. But I also want them to understand that the public, along with the state and the federal government, have the power to change the trajectory of this epidemic. So... You know, that it's important to know this. It's important to steal yourself for it. But at the same time, good news is starting to trickle in uh, in Europe uh, where things have been so tough. Um, uh, Italy, Spain and France on, on Sunday reported a drop in coronavirus death tolls is a very, very encouraging sign. Obviously, we, it's got to continue. But still, it, this is the third day of decline in Italy's fatalities where they've been as hard hit. I think as I, they have the highest death toll of any country. So there's, you know, a little sign that this could turn around. And Trump has started talking about rebuilding. This is cut 12. We will continue to use every power, every authority, every single resource we've got to keep our people healthy, safe, secure, and to get this thing over with. We want to finish this war. We have to get back to work. We have to get we have to open our country again. We have to open our country again. We don't want to be doing this for months and months and months we're going to open our country again this country wasn't meant for this few were so so here's the question from the associated press i think this is is this clip three yeah this is clip three here's the question from the associated press listen carefully the surgeon general this morning was talking about the coming week being among the hardest and saddest uh, weeks of our lives he was talking about this being our uh, pearl harbor our 9-11 moment you all are talking about glimmers of hope and stabilization. How are the American people supposed to bridge those different descriptions that they're getting from this administration? I don't think they're so different. <laughs> think about this question for a minute. Think about this question. How can you mention hope when things are at their worst? That's what the guy is essentially asking. When things are darkest, how can you call on people to hope? <laughs> you know, there's, there used to be. He used to be a uh, comedy, uh, comedic columnist who wrote about, she was a, a woman who wrote about home life, you know, being a mom and being a housewife. And she wrote these very funny columns. And one of her funniest columns, she wrote about the, the advice that psychologists used to give, never hit your child in anger. And she, and she wrote a, co- a, a, a comic verse that went, never hit your child in anger. Never do it when I rate. Save it for a happy time when things are going great. <laughs> so that's essentially the attitude this reporter is saying. He's saying, you know, when things are dark, how, how dare you talk about hope? And why do they do it? Because they do it because it's Trump. They do it because everything he says has to be a scandal. They do it to create the atmosphere of chaos and scandal. And, that's, and as this gets worse and as the numbers go up in our country, you're going to start to hear these ideas ramping up. You're already hearing a congresswoman saying she's going to go to The Hague and report him for crimes against humanity. There's some idiot on Twitter, you know, some legal scholar on Twitter saying this is manslaughter because of, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And this stuff is just going to get worse and worse as we go in because they're wimps, because they're wusses, because they're bad people who cannot control themselves at the time when you have to control yourself. This is the time when you have to control yourself. They tell you it's coming, it comes, and then you go nuts. It happens to everybody, but you have to make the decision, no, this is the kind of person I'm going to be. I'm going to be the kind of person who stares steely through the dark part into the place where I'm planning for when things are going to come back. That is the way you have to behave because you have no choice. Because, there's, you know, what is the, the other thing? The other thing is to scream and yell and, and make things worse for the people all around you. And, of course, later on, 
when you look back on how you behave, this is the moment you're going to look back on. This is the time when you're going to think like, hey, you know what? Next time there's a problem, all these things, you know, it's a funny thing. Psychiatrists are reporting, psychologists are reporting that people who have anxiety problems are suddenly very calm. Why? Because anxiety is the fear of fear. It's the fear of what's going to happen. Once the thing happens, a lot of people who are anxious suddenly go like, oh, the worst has come. Now I feel much better. Once you've been through that, you should remember it. You should learn from that, you know, that now, oh, I get it. I don't have to be so afraid in the future because feeling good only when bad things happen, calming down only when the suspense is broken and the bad things happen, it's no way to live, right? It's no way to live. So the way you want to live is you want to live knowing that you can handle, you know, you don't want it to come. You don't hope it doesn't come, but you know you can handle it when it does come. And that's the thing you're going to learn now if you've never been through something like this before. So, you know, the one thing that people have been talking about is the economy. And, you know, there's kind of there seems to be a division between the left. The left wants to weep and cry and scream. Oh, yeah. How can you think about the economy when people are dying? And the right has some people on the right are taking this very uh, loud mouth kind of fist to palm. You know, we've overreacted and we've got it. You know, we'll probably never know if we overreacted. Because even if the death toll turns out to be quite low, as, as God willing it will, uh, we'll never know whether that was because of the action that the administration took and because everybody acted like this. We, we just won't know whether we overreacted. But, you know, this, this sense in business, like how can we shut everything down uh, just because a few old folks are dying? Uh, first of all, we have to remember I'm one of them. So that's really important. We have to stop everything from people. People keep yelling about this on Twitter. You want to shut down everything just to save the Claven. Yeah, exactly. That's my plan. But the thing is, I have been feeling, too, that the the panic over the economy obviously is bad for the economy. I'm not trying to make light of it. And I know people are suffering. and I know people have lost jobs and the unemployment rate has skyrocketed. Of course, the important thing about the unemployment rate is not only how many people are unemployed, it's for how long they're unemployed. If everybody's unemployed for 10 minutes, not such a big deal. If it becomes a, a depression, that's a terrible thing. But there's a a Nobel Prize winning economist, Vernon Smith, who was writing the Wall Street Journal today, uh, and his article is headlined, The Economy Will Survive the Coronavirus, uh, and that there'll be changes. And this is kind of the way I have felt about this. I'm not an economist, so I try to keep my opinions to myself. But I want to read just a little bit of his uh, saying that when he projects out, people ask how costly three months of quarantine will be. Perhaps it will hasten the decline of companies and products that are already under competitive pressure, like brick and mortar department stores and movie theaters. Such businesses occupy large buildings and may be rescued by innovative conversion into apartments with handy downstairs theaters and discounters. Such experiments are lubricated by the market's deep discount of abandoned revenueless space. So he's saying that's the way that that may come back. But the hastened decline of old patterns of service will be more than matched, he says, by the growth of mail order, delivery, takeout, and related services. Growth firms in these areas are already benefiting from transportation technologies with low transaction costs that match buyers to sellers in real time, place, and circumstances. And there's another side to this as well. We're all talking about, will things change? Will people have new values? A friend of mine, Joshua Herr, points out that when we talk about things like the Benedict Option, where we reform smaller communities to keep our values intact, those things don't happen because you talk about them. They happen because you do them. And this is a a time when you may find, we may find ourselves regrouping as brick and mortar shuts down, that's going to be painful for some places, but it's going to be good for other places. And we may find that we now associate with the people that we want to associate with, making it easier for us to preserve our values and our children's values in the wake of leftism from the government. All right, let us stop for a moment and talk about, you know, I love to talk about rockauto.com. 
<laughs> just love saying rockauto.com. Uh, you know, your car needs parts. Obviously, you do not want to go out and stand in a crowded line two feet away from the guy sniffling in front of you to get a new car part. When the, the guy even at the car parts store doesn't know much more about it than you do, and you can go on rockauto.com and find everything you need and find out what you need for any car you need. The rockauto.com catalog is unique. It's remarkably easy to navigate, and they have everything you're going to need for whatever car you're driving. RockAuto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear. Uh, RockAuto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. So go to RockAuto.com if for no other reason. So you can say RockAuto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck and write Claven in there. How did you hear about us box so they know we sent you and then write it Claven again in their how do you spell Claven box so they know you know how to spell Claven. There are no easy <laughs> It's K-L-A. It's K-L-A. I'll never get tired of that joke. It's K-L-A-V-A-N because I just make it look this easy. It's true. Uh, but, you know, I think it, it's important also that we keep uh, try to be fair uh, in our politics uh, right now. I think it's, you know, we're talking about the things that Trump is saying um, but I think we, it's also <laughs> important to hear from his opponent, uh, his presumptive opponent, Joe Biden. So here's what he said. This is cut number one. We cannot let this. We've never allowed any crisis from the Civil War straight through to the pandemic of 17, all the way around 16. We have never, never let our democracy takes second fiddle way that we can both have a democracy and elections and at the same time correct the public health. <laughs> I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. <laughs> I, just, I just also have to play Trump's response when he was told that Biden had attacked him in a tweet. This is cut 18. Joe Biden actually just attacked you in a tweet. I don't know if you have seen it. He just what? Attacked you. He just said. Well, he didn't write anything. Look, he has people, he has professionals from the Democrats. Mr. President, let me just read what he said. He said Donald Trump is not responsible for the coronavirus, but he is responsible for failing to prepare our nation to respond to it. How do you respond to that, sir? Uh, He didn't write that. That was done by a Democrat operative. He doesn't write. He doesn't. He's probably not even watching right now. Uh, and if he is, he doesn't understand what he's watching. <laughs> so, Trump at his best. So, so, you know, I want to talk for a minute about some of the hysteria from the conservative side. This idea that we've lost all our civil rights, that we're living in, uh, you know, a, a future science fiction movie where the government runs everything. And look, there have been some oversteps. Uh, there have been some, the, you know, one of the Benham brothers, our friends who we talked about last week, uh, was hauled in for uh, trying to counsel uh, women outside an abortion clinic saying if the abortion clinic is an essential service, then so is me uh, counseling pro-life things, you know, and we, you know, this is just, that's overstepping. Uh, there's been overstepping somewhere. I think it was in San Diego. I believe somebody was pulled over for driving in his car. We're just taking a drive. Uh, you know, you're going to find this, especially in blue states. You're going to find it in the leftist states where they are tyrant. You know, you scratch a leftist, you find a tyrant. That is true. But the hysteria from the right is unnecessary. Uh, you know, the there was an article uh, several weeks ago uh, in the journal by two conservative uh, constitutional scho- scholars, David Rifkin and Charles Stimson, uh, talking about, you know, yes, all the stuff that's happening goes against the grain in America, whose people treasure freedom and constitutional rights. But the government 
has ample constitutional and legal authority to impose such emergency steps, right? The, the, it, especially um, especially uh, localities, municipalities, and states. The Constitution governs the behavior of the federal government. And of course, all the rights that you have in the Constitution apply in the states, but states do have emergency rights to handle these crises. And that's why, you know, it's good to hear, uh, you know, when they're asking Trump to suddenly, they're asking, they're begging, the people who said Trump is a tyrant are now begging Trump to be a tyrant. So you have uh, Cut 15, where basically they say to Trump, lock down the whole country. You should be, you know, you, the president should lock down the whole country. It's Cut 15. We have a thing called the Constitution, which I cherish, number one. Number two, those governors, I know Every one of them, they're doing a great job. Uh, they're being very, very successful in what they're doing. And as you know, I want the governors to be running things now. In some cases, we'll supersede. But in this case, it's not. I think it depends. It depends on the individual state that you're talking about. But they're doing very well and they're doing a magnificent job in running their states. So that's Adolf Hitler Trump, you know, preaching to the media who saw that he was Adolf Hitler about the Constitution. I mean, it's just the irony. Should, the guy should have been like crushed under the irony, just flattened. But this is the reason, though. The, here's the thing. This, the municipalities and states do have exceptional powers in an emergency. That's the very reason you have to learn not to let them declare an emergency. That's the reason when you hear a computer model, we were talking about computer models before, and they say in 12 years, the climate is going to destroy everything. And then they get there and they say, oh, never mind. That's why you do not want Alexandria occasional cortex dictating some idiocy like the Green New Deal, which is just a bunch of blathermen to take your rights away. That's all it is. You don't want her doing that. That's the reason they keep preaching emergency. That's the reason everything looks so dire to them. That's the reason that the climate, you know, the, the health care, everything is just in a terrible crisis situation. They want that sweet, sweet power. Here's AOC doing one of her, I, I don't know which platform she does these on, Instagram maybe, uh, where she, oh, maybe it's those Facebook, it must be the Facebook thing where she uh, talks to people directly. And here she is talking about the state of America for most people. This is supposed to be the richest society in the world. And I think what this crisis is showing us is that this is only a rich society for a very small amount of people. And it is a brutal, barbarian society for the vast majority of working class Americans, because 40 percent of us are couldn't even afford a four hundred dollar emergency before this thing started. A wonderful young bartender. <laughs> so, so that's it's a barbarian society. It's a barbarian. Her deep knowledge of history in other places. Has she ever been to any other places? Has she ever been anywhere? I mean, that's her deep knowledge. We are a barbarian society. And here's her former friend, because um, they're now they've now had a falling out, apparently. But Bernie Sanders uh, talking about what the country needs is cut 21. Younger people in this country understand that we need fundamental change in the structure of American society. But instead of having society which glamorizes billionaires and says that we're all in this, the only thing that we should be doing is trying to make huge amounts of money. There is an entire younger generation that says, well, you know what? Maybe we should work together to create an economy that works for all, a healthcare system that works for all. So now we know, right, we know that the left and, and they're representative of that of the far left. I mean, it's not. And the far left is basically the wind beneath the wings of the Democrat Party. So now that we know they think this is a barbaric society, 
And anyone who thinks this is a barbaric society has never been anywhere. They've literally just never been anywhere. They've never gotten outside of like their classrooms. But they think it's a barbaric society and they think what it needs, what it needs is uh, socialism, you know, which which is really stunning because there actually is at this point no such thing. I can't think of a socialist country except Venezuela. You know, I mean, I can't think of Cuba, I guess. I mean, there's no such thing as a socialist country. And when Bernie starts talking about places like Denmark and he starts talking about, you know, Scandinavia, they they go like, no, 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 we're not we're not socialists. We tried that and it almost ruined our powerful economy. Now they're free market economies with very powerful safety nets and very powerful, uh, you know, government um transfers of wealth, but still those things work in small countries that have homogenous societies where everyone's named Sven, you know? So, so Trump is now preaching to, to the, the press. He's talking to the press about the way they should behave. He's cut 16, uh, basically telling them to dial it back. We want as few lives lost as possible. It's therefore critical that certain media outlets stop spreading false rumors and creating fear and even panic with the public. It's just incredible. I could name them, but it's the same ones, always the same ones. I guess they're looking for ratings. I don't know what they're looking for. So bad for our country and so bad. The people understand it. You look at the levels and approval ratings and they're the lowest they've ever been for media. It's so bad for, for our country, so bad for the world. You got to put it together for a little while, get this over with, and then go back to your fake news. During a national emergency, it's just essential that the federal decision makers cut through the fog of confusion in order to follow the facts and the science. So, again, this is the moment. This is the moment when things when we're reaching the peak, when things are going to look ugly, when people are going to lose control a little bit. This is the moment when we should be talking, the good people, the smart people, the sane people, the calm people should be talking about what we do next, what we do next, how we reopen. And I was really uh, chuffed, as the English say, I was really encouraged to uh, see that Trump was appointing someone to lead that uh, that effort, because this is the thing that has to be done now. And now is the time when the voices are going to be raised, telling us it can't be done, telling us we must despair, telling, you know, you have to remember all those times you talk about Pearl Harbor, you talk about the Blitz, you know, you see the queen, you immediately think of her courage during the Blitz. All those times, all those times, there were people who panicked. There were people who forgot that this is the time when you have to exercise this kind of hopefulness, this kind of forward-looking stuff. It's, it's hard. It's hard to do. We admire people who get through it because it's hard. It's not something that just comes naturally. It is a choice you have to make. We have to make sure, we have to encourage Trump, we have to encourage the administration with our voices to make those choices because the economy has to start and it's going to have to start happening pretty soon. All right, I hope you guys are listening to the uh, all-access a live stuff we're doing. We're on every night. At is, is it every night, guys? Is it every night uh, on the weekends as well? It's every night, 8 p.m. East. Not the weekends. Okay, it's every weeknight. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I'll be on on Thursday. Uh, you can just wait for that or you can listen to everybody else, I mean, as well. No, you know, Jeremy, uh, the God King will be doing it. He's always interesting. Uh, Knowles, he's always Knowles. And Ben and everybody is coming on and talking. And it's just a more casual way where you get to talk back. If you're a subscriber, you get to ask us questions. We love hearing from you. We all love hearing from you. We really do. It is wonderful to be in an interaction with you, especially in this time when everybody is isolated and we're not seeing all the people we like to see as much as we like. So it's nice for us 
to see one another. It's more relaxed. We, you know, we were going to just give this to the all access members, which is the highest tier of membership, but we decided, you know, it's a, a tough time. People are isolated. We're giving it to all our subscribers. Good reason to become a subscriber. Go to dailywire.com and subscribe. And an excellent, another excellent reason is you get to be on the mailbag, which is Wednesday, and we will solve every single one of your problems with answers guaranteed 100% correct. So come on over to dailywire.com. So I, I want to play a, a clip by someone I know is, is your favorite newsman uh, and, and his uh, Jim, look at me. I'm Jim Acosta. Uh, it's actually um, a cut of Deborah Burks um, talking about th- this game that everyone is playing. And this is this is what I want to talk about a little bit is this game of who knew first, who saw it first and you weren't there and I saw it first and I did this and you did that, but you were late and I see, you know, it was at Malfeasance. And, and, and Burks was just giving a realistic talk about the fact that, you know, people don't know. They don't know. Remember, there's a million warnings coming to you, a million crises. Everybody has his hobby horse. Everybody wants to sell his crisis. You know, they there used to be, I've talked about this before, after Pearl Harbor, there was a conspiracy theory that FDR was warned there would be a Pearl Harbor and he let it happen so he could get America into the war based on the fact that he had had a warning. But how is he to determine from, you know, he doesn't see the future. Nobody sees the future. How's he determined? Oh, yeah, this is the warning uh, that that I should pay attention to. Hilariously now, hilariously, ABC News was running a story about the fact that George W. Bush in 2005 read a book about pandemics and came out and he said, you know, we're not ready for this. This is the thing we really have to prepare for. We have to prepare for pandemics. So the idea of the mainstream news media praising the, the last Adolf Hitler, the last time we had to go through uh, Adolf Hitler and Nazism was George W. Bush. And they're praising him. This is the guy, remember, that after 100 years of Democrat corruption, in New Orleans, after a hundred years of federal funds that were supposed to meant to strengthen the levies in in New Orleans, going into the pockets of Democrat governors who then went into went to jail for corruption, after a hundred years of that, the Hurricane Katrina hit and the levies broke, and they blamed George W. Bush. It was all his fault. It was all his fault because he didn't respond because the governor didn't want his help. So just remember that. And now suddenly he's the we have a strange new respect for George W. Bush because he foresaw the pandemic. Nobody foresees anything. Nobody foresees anything. And if they do, it's because they're constantly looking for disasters or because they just happen to be the guy who got it right this time. So let's listen to Deborah Burks uh, talking and listen carefully to what Jim, look at me, I'm Jim Acosta. Why? He was accused of mansplaining, but that's not my problem with him. Sometimes he got a mansplain. <laughs> my problem was the actual question that he asked replacing what she was talking about. Could we have done some piece of this better as a global community? I will remind you that on February 3rd, the head of the WHO said there was no reason to ever do a travel ban. You know, it wasn't until January 14th that we knew that there was human-to-human transmission. Burke, the president was saying this was going to go away. It's April. It is going to go away. But, Mr. President, it's you said it was going to go away in it's April. You said we're warming up in April. I said it's going away, and it is going away. See it on socks. So let me let me just think about this for a minute. Let's think about let's do a little mind experiment. Let's say you're a reporter and Deborah Brooks is talking about the fact that the World Health Organization of the UN withheld information and gave us bad information, echoing 
by the way, the Chinese, the Chinese communists giving us bad information, the Chinese who suddenly have no f- more cases, who suddenly just stopped the coronavirus dead in its tracks, and, and we're still quoting their numbers on CNN and other places as if they were real numbers. So she's talking about that. And your question is, you say we didn't go away and it didn't go away. I have to do that voice because that's what it's like. It's like an, a toddler. It's like a toddler. That's not even news. It is not even news. We know the way Donald Trump talks. We're all capable of translating Trump into English at this point. We're all capable of knowing that he he talks in hyperboles and he talks in an optimistic, upbeat way that has helped business and will help business again once this is over. So, you know, how is it news? How is it news? Why is it a story? Especially when our friends over at the Media Research Center have just done a study saying CNN's latest Trump bashing narrative is something to the tune of everyone knew the coronavirus was a serious problem in January and everyone was taking it immensely seriously except for President Trump and his incompetent administration. Yet a Media Research Center analysis finds CNN's own coverage of the virus in January and early February was incredibly deficient as the liberal cable network was reluctant to vote much time to anything unrelated to, you guessed it, Trump's impeachment. CNN and the Democrats were paying attention to Trump's impeachment, not this. MRC analysts examined all of CNN's daily programming from 6 a.m. to midnight between January 17th, the first day any news network discussed the coronavirus, through February 5th. So that's that crucial period when we were figuring out that's what this was. Our analysts found that CNN's January coronavirus airtime averaged 12 minutes per day, or about 40 seconds per hour. That works out to a meager 1.6% of their total coverage, even after excluding an average of 21 minutes of ad time per hour on the network. By comparison, the three major broadcast networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, projected a clear sense of urgency from the start. On average, they spent two and a half minutes per evening newscast on the coronavirus during those same days, and their newscasts were only about 19 minutes long, minus commercials. That comes out to a rate of five minutes of corona, the coronavirus coverage per hour, 14% of all coverage, or nearly eight times the rate of CNN. So again, you know, everybody makes mistakes in situations like this. Nobody sees Pearl Harbor coming. Only people pretend that they could have seen it coming after it happens. Nobody sees stuff like this happening. Nobody knows which of the viruses, SARS or or MERS or what, or which one is going to be the one that is the one we've all been afraid of for so long. Were there mistakes? Of course there are. Of course there are mistakes. But, you know, that this whole game is ridiculous. And Biden, our friend Joe Biden, is just lying about it. I mean, he's just lying about it. He is now saying, Joe Biden, you remember this when Trump closed off travel from China, which he did very, very early. He reacted very early, very quickly to this. Biden and most of the other Democrats accused him of xenophobia. And this is just another one of the things he did. He stopped this. Biden stopped accusing him of that and changed his mind in April. This is now April. What is it? April 6th, 10th. I've forgotten the date. It's a It's the 6th. Yeah. April 6th. So this is three days ago. Biden changed his mind on this. Here's what he's saying about it now. You have to move swiftly and uh, we have to move more rapidly. You have to implement the Defense Production Act and power supply commander, create a, you know, uh, a a Defense Production Act for banks to get out small business loans, ramp up testing, a whole range of things. You got to go faster than slower. And we we started off awfully slow. He indicated that uh, I complimented him on uh, on dealing with China. Well, you know, 45 nations had already moved 
to keep uh, um, uh, block China's uh, personnel from being able to come to the United States uh, before the president moved. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. He is a lying dog-faced pony soldier. There's no truth to that whatsoever. And also, I mean, it's now like now they're not even asking Biden about this. They're gaslighting us to make it sound like he you know, had some kind of uh, foresight that Trump didn't have when Trump actually did act very quickly in this regard. And according to Fauci, saved a lot of lives by doing so. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, this game, it's just, it is exactly the stuff. It's exactly the stuff that we want to keep away from. I, tr- I try to expose it because my, I feel like the best thing I can offer at this moment is the fact that, you know, what novelists do, novelists do something different than, jur- well, they do what journalists should do in a lot of ways, but not what novelists do is simply examine the human condition. They look at the way people behave in certain circumstances and they try to get truths about human beings. And that gives you, if you, if you read good novels and you, you develop over time a sense of the way human beings are going to behave, including yourself, and that helps you to guide your way through life. It's that simple. That's what fiction is for. That's what art is for. It helps you to guide your way through life to know how human beings behave. So I'm just pointing out the fact that suddenly, suddenly everybody saw things that nobody saw. Suddenly everybody knew things that everybody knew. And of course, because we have this broken system of communication, because our news agencies are broken and they are broken because they all have one opinion, they're broken because they all agree with one another, they're broken because they all agree with the establishment, the, the people who are in place in the CIA and the FBI and the journal, in journalism, in government, in the academies, they're all on the same page. And they're all wrong and they're all incorrect and their opinions need to be challenged. And so because that system of communicating is broken, we have to figure out where to get information and how to get information and how to react. And that's why I say, you know, if you're if you're having problems about anxiety or constantly angry or having problems reacting in a time of trouble, especially if you're in one of the hot spots, you know, filter the information you take in. Don't just go to places that you know are going to make you angry because it's not going to help and it's just going to hurt what's going on. This is the moment. This is the moment if the projections are correct and this is the moment when things peak. It's going to be a lot of grief. There's going to be a lot of fear. There's going to be a lot of anxiety. This is the moment when you're going to look back and say, oh yeah, I can do this. And when the next one comes up, I can do it again because that's the kind of person I am. All right. A final uh, reflection. Uh, Over the weekend, we're trying at my house to watch some classic films, especially either classic films that I haven't seen, which is literally a countable number, uh, or ones I haven't seen in so long that I can uh, refresh my memory. And this was one I actually hadn't seen, a film called Dinner at Eight from 1933. So it's pre-code. There's a lot of shocking, uh, shocking because it's all in black and white and old fashioned, a lot of shocking sexual references, a lot of very obvious people having affairs. But the one thing that I was really struck by, this is based, it's a very stagey movie. It's kind of a filmed play. And it's based on a play by two famous American writers of the time, George Kaufman and Edna Ferber, uh, Dinner at Eight. And it's just about this very flighty uh, woman who thinks she's wealthy, but it's the depression. And she doesn't know that her husband is having financial problems. And she's planning a dinner that she hopes is going to be her, uh, is going to up her status. And she's inviting all these characters. And it's all about the characters. And the thing that, uh, that shocked me about it was just how adult some of the scenes were. Again, it's old. It's very old, stagey and old fashioned. And I'm not sure that I, I really liked it. I was really taken with it, but it, I, I liked it from a distance. I wasn't really swept up in it emotionally. 
I was taken with scenes like a doctor. There's a philandering doctor and a doctor who cheats on his wife. And there's a scene where the wife comes in and she says, you know, I, I love you. I love you and I still love you. And I've learned to live with this thing, but it is devastating. And it's like you're two people. You're this magnificent person, this wonderful doctor. And at the same time, you're this kind of shabby person who's never gotten out of the poor neighborhood you came up from and keeps going sleeping with these trashing women. And it's a wonderfully painful scene between these two people, both of them doing something they don't want to do, him cheating on her when he wishes he could stop, and her living with him when she wishes she could leave. And I was just thinking, God, they were so much more adult than we are. So much Their films are so much more adult than our films. And I, I was looking at this, and I was thinking, you know, people always, I get a lot of hard time from people because I don't like Marvel comic movies very much. And it's not like I, like I always say, I don't mind one a year to a year, but the fact that that's all that they make. And just the difference, the difference in the way they were dealing with their emotional problems, the sort of tragic sense that we do things we don't want to do, that we are people we don't want to be. It was just a really remarkable thing. And it's, it just kind of made me think about the fact that these are the people who handled the depression. These are the people who handled Pearl Harbor. These are the people who handled the crises that we look back on now and think, wow, they really, um, they really were brave. They really were courageous. Even when they weren't great people, they were really courageous. And maybe we should be looking to think about what it is about them that makes them so much more adult than people are now. What, you know, why are they able to deal with so much more emotional complexity in their films than we can in our films and in our books, which just basically seem to know what's right and what's wrong and just want to preach it to you because they've got it all figured out. It's worth thinking about anyway, what it is, what it takes to make a, gener a great generation because this generation may be remembered as a great generation. We'll find out. All right, I'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Wall Show, and The Michael Knowles Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. And our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Assistant director, Pavel Wydowski. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio mixed by Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup is by Jessua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, McKenna Waters and Ryan Love. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. Over the past few days, evidence is emerging that coronavirus models may have overestimated the pandemic. Even hard-hit areas like Italy and New York may be turning the corner earlier than projected. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and a whole lot of people will have a whole lot of explaining to do as to why we just destroyed the global economy. We will examine the value of hindsight and how shoulda, coulda, woulda will affect the 2020 election. Then, despite months of mainstream media insistence that the Wuhan virus has nothing to do with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, News reports suggest a link between the two. We will take a look at the latest and how a conspiratorial press has abused the term conspiracy theory. All that and more, check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.